Good afternoon. Uh, thank you very much for joining us today. My name is Brandon Arnold with the Cato Institute. And uh, today we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, counterterrorism and the messages that the United States sends to, uh, to terrorists and potential terrorists uh, around the world. Uh, we have a, a really excellent panel lined up, uh, and I guess we'll just get right to it. Um, our first speaker is going to be Jim Harper. Jim is Cato's Director of Information Policy Studies. If you're wondering what information policy studies is, uh, you're not alone. I'm pretty sure he is, uh, based on a very brief Google search, the only director of information policy studies in the known world. Uh, information policy studies is the study uh, of the intersection of, of law and public policy and uh, privacy as, as the technological world develops and new challenges arise. Is that a fair description? No. No, that was awful. Uh, <laughs> Well, he'll explain it to you later. Basically, it's, uh, it's a title that allows him to work on whatever the heck he wants and uh, run under the cover of a nebulous title. Uh, Jim uh, is also, uh, in addition to uh, his role with Cato, also is a member of the Department of Homeland Security's Data Privacy and Integrity Advisory Committee. Uh, he's the editor of Privacilla.org, which is a web-based think tank devoted to, exclusively to privacy. And he also runs uh, WashingtonWatch.com, which is a website that looks at federal spending. Uh, Jim holds a JD from uh, the UC's Hastings College of Law. Uh, and for the purposes of today's uh, discussion, he, uh, I should note that he is the co-editor of Terrorizing Ourselves, uh, which is a new book uh, published by the Cato Institute. Uh, I should mention also that we do have a few copies uh, by the registration table, so if you're so impressed with Jim uh, today that you want to read his book, uh, let us know after the session, and uh, we'll see if we have a copy for you. With that, I'll turn things over to Jim Harper. I should say that you don't have to be impressed with me to take a copy of the book if you're interested in reading it. Um, thanks, Brandon, uh, and thanks to all of you for being here today. Uh, I think we're going to talk about some really interesting stuff um, as much in my talk about our book as, as Josh's talk about his book, which I discovered in the course of working on ours, and I think it's really terrific as well. Well, since it came up, I'll talk a little bit about information policy and what the, what the heck an information policy person is doing working on terrorism issues. Information policy, to me, uh, is, is really breaks down into three areas. Uh, the majority of what I do is privacy-type work, right and wrong with information use, and particularly personal information use. And how does that affect it? What are the social circumstances that are arising with new technology? And so Brandon was, uh, was, was pretty on with that, actually. I also do telecommunications and intellectual property. In my work as an advisor on privacy issues to the Department of Homeland Security over the past five, maybe now six years, I'm one of the original members of the DHS Privacy Committee, uh, I came to feel that, that the Department of Homeland Security, not wrongly, not for bad reasons, has a sort of terror mania about it. And it was very hard to have conversations about privacy, which is sometimes an intention with security. Um, it's hard to have conversations about privacy that go sensibly when terrorism is, is regarded as an outsized problem, when, when as I say, um, sort of in jest, when people think terrorists are 10 feet tall, that they have 200-plus uh, IQs, access to uh, the best quality laboratory equipment and things like that. Um, you, can't, you can't talk sensibly about cost and benefit. You can't talk sensibly about privacy while that, while that is people's impression. And so I, I realized that, that we need to get a handle on terrorism as a security problem, uh, as a country, uh, in order to make sure that all our values are protected and that we're then that our security is protected, I think that's job one. The reason why 
uh, we enter into government as a matter of social contract theory is in order to get security. And so it's a legitimate function of government. It's one that we want to do right. It's one that we don't want to overdo because then we give up other values and, and the economic benefits of living in a, in a free, open society with a competitive marketplace. So how, do we, how are we going to fix this problem? Well, I joined with my colleague Chris Preble, who's here today, uh, another, another Ben Friedman and several other folks at Cato to put together a proposal uh, that, that the Atlantic Philanthropies uh, ultimately funded. And, and with their generous support, we've been working almost now three years on trying to produce a better counterterrorism thinking, better counterterrorism strategy than, than what's come before. Our job isn't to criticize past policies, and I think they're frankly forgivable because they were uh, they, they came into, into existence in a time of great urgency without the opportunity for forethought. And so our job is not to, uh, not to go back in time, but to understand terrorism, understand terrorists, and figure out what we can do. What are the chinks in their armor? What are the chinks in the armor of their strategy that we can use to effectively combat terrorism? And it's a very interesting, very difficult uh, area that I'll get into shortly. Um, what we did first in the fall of 2008 is we convened a group of terrorism experts that were really from a, a diverse array of fields. And the book helps to illustrate that, that solving the terrorism problem or, or, or controlling the problem of terrorism really requires a lot of knowledge from a lot of different disciplines. And we brought a group of 30 or so together in Chicago. And I was in, very interested by the, by the discussions we had there because I got the sense that a lot of them were discovering for the first time that there are a lot of other people who think the way they do. There's a really, a, really a, a welter of resources um, in universities and think tanks around the country and world who know a lot about this problem, but it hadn't, hadn't come together yet. And I think that first uh, convening of, of uh, experts from, again, all these different fields in Chicago in, in 2008 was the start of something that was, that was very good, very important. We brought many of them back here to Washington uh, in January 2009, just the week before the Obama administration, before President Obama was inaugurated, uh, to have a conference, a two-day conference with 30-plus uh, uh, experts, um, many different panels discussing different dimensions of the terrorism problem and how to deal with it. I recommend it, frankly, if you're, if you're uh, looking for some way to cool your heels during the August recess, um, you can review... That, that conference on Cato.org, I regularly go back to it. Uh, you can find it, go to Cato.org, events, and then the, in the event archive, it's the, the very bottom because it was first conference of 2009, the, the very bottom of that page. And just watch some of those videos. Watch some of these experts who have real knowledge about terrorists. What makes them tick? What are their strategic interests? Um, how, do, how do you divide them up? They're not all the same. They have different motivations and different ideas. How do you do rational homeland security in the context of terrorism? There's so many different subjects and so many different experts. It's a real resource that, along with this book, could, can really help you understand this problem and work towards solutions. We held another conference, a, a one-day or, or a little bit longer than a half-day session, to sort, of, to sort of follow up after one year in, uh, of the administration in January of this year and had uh, a speech from uh, Dan Benjamin, who was a participant in, in Chicago and is now in the State Department, along with a panel discussion among a variety of experts and commentators to sort of see how the Obama administration has done with counterterrorism during its first year. Obviously, we, we had some terrorist incidents, and so we had more than we wanted to talk about at that conference. But that, again, uh, may be helpful and interesting material for you to see on Cato.org in the events section. As all this work was going on, we were taking um, some of the most interesting pieces of the terrorism puzzle and asking authors... To, to put what they what they think about and what they work on 
into this book as chapters, and we really have a, a, a wide array of chapters that I'll, that I'll go into. Here on the Hill, some of you may have already attended uh, sessions we've had about the book, one led by my colleague Chris Preble on the question of the use of military in counterterrorism, how appropriate is the military in counterterrorism, what are the drawbacks of using military force in counterterrorism. We've also had one on homeland security. How do you rationalize homeland security so that our national resources are directed well, so they're directed effectively against countering terrorism? That's a very difficult problem and another whole set of issues uh, to work on in order to address terrorism well. Today we'll talk about strategy and we'll talk about signaling, the idea that terrorism has a logic, and knowing that logic puts you in a position to respond appropriately. Signaling, the idea that Terrorism, terrorist acts are meant to communicate as much as they're meant to do damage, and our responses communicate as much as they're meant to have kinetic, real-world effects. They have communicative effects that are a very important part of responding to terrorism. So I'll talk about a very simple thesis that I've developed and, and maintained through our, through our work that I think is, is pretty easy to grasp and that's pretty, that could be pretty useful to all of you in thinking about this problem. Fundamentally, I think... Terrorism does the majority of its work by inviting overreaction on the part of the victim state. Overreaction is what terrorism seeks. Now, terrorists can do a lot of damage, and we know that well from the 911 attacks, which are probably an outlier. Most, most terrorist attacks amount to bombings that may kill. They're certainly unfortunate when they happen, and we always regret them happening. But the majority of the, the costs incurred by a country in light of a terrorist attack are not just cleaning up the damage or, or repairing the building or whatever it may be, but all the things that the country does afterwards, which may include, among other things, going to war, something the United States did, huge spending on, for example, airline security, where, where tens of billions of dollars per year were spending on airline security. Is it being spent well? In part, probably yes. In large part, probably no. But so these costs we're incurring on an ongoing, continuing basis long after 911 because of 911, in a sense, that continues to expand on the success of that unfortunate attack. Waste of blood and treasure is one of the goals of terrorism, waste of blood and treasure on the part of the victim state. Another is to drive states to react in ways that drive sympathy and support to terrorism and to terrorist groups. So we, for all our, for all our good work, and I think, I think we, we do good work and we're improving in Afghanistan, there have been incidents where actually or we can be portrayed as having caused uh, harm to wedding parties, to children, to local communities, people who want to be living their lives, who have terrorists among them, do not support the terrorists, but still suffer damage when the United States and U.S. allies respond to terrorists. The kind of damage that a big country like ours can do trying to stomp out terrorism may drive sympathy and support to terrorists. There, there are communities, both ideological and local to terrorists, that are very important players. They're not terrorists, but they're nearby, either, either physically nearby or ideologically, mentally nearby. And that's a very important party that we want to influence. And overreacting in ways that drive them away from us and toward terrorists and terrorism is a mistake. Finally, overreaction will tend to confirm terrorist ideology. Very interesting uh, uh, expert named Max Abrams has a paper called What Terrorists Really Want. And it's a little bit of a counterpoint to the theory that terrorists are, um, are geopolitical actors that have 
nation-state type gains. They want this country to have this policy. They want this military unit to move out of this area. Many do have those kinds of aims, but many also want to be part of something bigger than themselves. Um, Michael German with the ACLU wrote a great book based on his experience as an FBI agent dealing with domestic U.S. terrorists. And his book validates, I think, Abrams' theory pretty well, that a lot of terrorists are pretty much like gang members. They have very few prospects. Uh, they don't have much way out of their unfortunate circumstances, but they want to be part of something bigger than themselves. They want to be, rather than a two-bit a two hoodlum in their local town, they want to be a member of the Bloods or the Clips, uh, the Crips. Um, that makes them badass. And being a member of al-Qaeda, as opposed to being some angry guy in your small town, that makes you badass. And so it's important to understand that U.S. actions that confirm uh, a bad narrative about the United States or the West drives those people who are otherwise not really in a position to do much at all toward terrorism because it confirms the story that folks in al-Qaeda and all the al-Qaeda affiliates are trying to tell them. I mean, the simplest example of that, of course, is the al-Qaeda narrative that the United States and the West want to be an occupying power in the Middle East. Uh, we, I, don't, I don't think we do. I doubt if most of you think we do want to be an occupying power. But they're trying to tell that story there and draw support to themselves by telling that story. Uh, for right or wrong, and I'll, I'll grant freely that I was a supporter of the Iraq invasion when it started and now recognize it to be a mistake, for right or wrong, that invasion confirmed that narrative very, very strongly. And we're still there continuing to confirm that narrative. Now, I'm not, saying, I'm not making any statement about what, what our policy should be in the next weeks or months. Um, it's not even worth debating why we went in for these purposes. Just the fact that our being there confirms that narrative and encourages support, encourages appreciation of the story that terrorists are trying to tell themselves and their potential recruits. Just be aware of all this stuff. Now, all this might have been a little bit complicated. There's so many different dimensions of this problem. But the solution is very simple. Don't overreact. Of course, I'm being facetious about calling that simple. It's hard. It's hard not to overreact. And the reason why is that terrorism interacts with our uh, open media. It interacts with our competitive po uh, politics in a very volatile way. As you know, because most of you in your offices have one or another cable show on TV all the time up in the corner of the room, Cable is constantly trying to get its audience energized about something. And so there was, when there's a terrorist attack that is successful in terms of producing kinetic energy that does damage, Cable is all over it. When there's a terrorist attack that's unsuccessful in terms of producing a scary story, Cable is all over it. Likewise, politicians, it's your requirement, as your boss's requirement, uh, as a representative of people, to talk to them about it and to talk about it. But unfortunately, too often... Members of Congress, presidents, senators, talk about terrorism in ways meant as much to gin up concerns as to calm them and to reduce overreaction. In fact, politicians, unfortunately, are in a position of both ginning up the, the fears and offering the solutions. So what do they do? They bid fears up higher. They offer more solutions. We end up, unfortunately, with overreaction that makes the country worse off rather than better off. Turning to our book, again, this problem, as, as you know from my, from my brief talk here, uh, this problem is very complex. And our book, book 
touches on many pieces of the problem to give you a sense of all the things that we need to work on in order to get terrorism solved, to get it under control so that we can move forward as a nation prosperous and free. Uh, the book talks about strategy. Great, great chapter in there by Audrey Kurth Cronin, who's an expert at the National War College on military strategy. And talk, she talks about the important and essential differences between war between nation states and the problem of terrorism. She has a book of her own on the subject. We talk about where terrorists come from. What are the factors that produce terrorism? Uh, it's, it's, some people try to come up with easy and simple solutions like poverty or, or lack of democracy. All these are true in some senses and they're untrue in many others. As I talked about earlier, the use of military force in counterterrorism, rational homeland security. We have a couple really interesting chapters that assess threats from some of the most prominently talked about uh, terrorist threat vectors, uh, nuclear terrorism, biological terrorism. I think it's important for all of us to remember that the 911 attacks were produced by some, some guys with real commitment, real luck, and razor blades, just simple box cutters. Somehow, and this is very, another very interesting dimension of the problem, we took the results of what they did, which were truly dramatic and shocking, and in our minds, sort of a com- convenient, made a convenient mental error, assumed that those results indicated how capable they were of doing more things like it. And so we talk about them having access to, to nuclear weapons, which are very difficult even for nation states to make. We talk about them having access to biological weapons, which are very difficult even for nation states to make, much less deploy. So some very interesting chapters there. And finally, we have some interesting chapters, and I think maybe the most helpful for you as people who work on these policies and communicate about these policies with the public, on communicating. How do you communicate about terrorism? What are the problems that the country needs to face? What are the ways to talk about this so that we maybe can avoid overreactions in the, in the, in the instance of the next attack? Uh, we have an, a, a chapter by uh, Bill Burns, who's, a, who's an expert on risk communications, about how you would prepare a society for the likely attacks. Take a, a dirty bomb attack. That's a bomb that, that has some radiological material on it and explodes, just a, a conventional-type explosion. The society is not prepared for that to happen because nobody knows what it means. Nobody knows what would happen. Nobody knows what to do. Educating the public in advance would put them in a position to know what to do. And for the most part, a dirty bomb is something you should walk away from, assuming you, you weren't directly hit by it. Walk away from, go home, and shower. And then stay home. And you're safe. Now, most people will evacuate a city foolishly, causing more harm than the bomb itself ca- caused in traffic accidents and all kinds of other uh, behaviors that, uh, that are, are mistaken. We have a, another chapter by Priscilla Lewis on, on tested messages about terrorism, uh, messages aimed toward calming the public so that we can address these threats carefully and seriously but not overreact, not overspend, not shed privacy and civil liberties needlessly. Among other things, the overreaction thesis is one that people understand. I test my, my talking points on my dad's friends when I'm back in California. An old man, Rich Trice, uh, my, uh, f- up, up the street, who's a ham radio operator, right? Mr. Safety. He almost wears, a, a, like, a yellow construction hat all day. <laughs> I talked to him about overreaction a few months ago, and he was like, yeah, that's it. They're trying to make us overreact. So communicate with your bosses and communicate with your public about that problem, and I think they'll understand it. Likewise, they understand that terrorists are self-aggrandizing actors. They want to be talked about. They want to be on the news. They want to be the subject of everybody's fear and adoration, depending on where they're coming from. 
I've gone long. Josh has a lot more to share about the idea of signaling who's trying to influence whom in terrorism. So let's continue. Thanks. Thanks, Jim. Uh, next up, we have uh, Joshua Geltzer. He, is a, uh, he holds a Ph.D. in war studies from King's College of, uh, of London. There he st- studied uh, on a Marshall Scholarship and focuses research primarily on American counterterrorism strategies, uh, specifically toward al-Qaeda. Uh, he actually authored a book, which was his uh, Ph.D. dissertation, entitled uh, U.S. Counterterrorism Strategy in Al-Qaeda, Signaling in the Terrorist Worldview. Uh, Before King's, he graduated from Princeton University's Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Uh, He's currently uh, studying at at Yale. He's in in, uh, Yale Law School's class of 2011, Uh, and he's performed a number of uh, uh, internships here in D.C., including one uh, at the Department of Justice's counterterrorism section, and uh, this summer at the State Department's Office Office of the Legal Advisor, as well as at the law firm of Covington and Burling. Uh, at Yale, I should also mention, he's the editor-in-chief of the Yale Law Journal. With that, I'll turn things over to Dr. Geltzer. Well, thank you all very much for, for coming, and uh, I really thank Brandon and, and Jim and, and Cato for letting me par- be part of this. I think they've put together a phenomenal volume that really could be a lot of use to a lot of people, and so uh, it's a privilege for me to get to partake in this discussion, and I'm grateful. Um, and I should say at the outset, even as a part-time employee of the Department of State, that the views I'm going to set forth today don't represent the departments or the governments. They are my own, um, but I think they're worthwhile anyway. Uh, So uh, what I'd like to do is to really take two points and kind of unpack them, and they're points that follow from the fundamentals that that Jim laid out. Uh, They're corollaries, I guess, to some of his points. And I'll set them out, and then I'll, I'll, I'll work through them a little bit. Point one is that A current challenge that seems to face the U.S. is avoiding turning tactical failures by terrorists into strategic successes for them. And I'll say what I mean by that. And two, and part of the answer as to how we do that, is to put out the idea that strategic communication really begins here at home. And this this will pick up on some of the points Jim made made towards the end of his remarks. It seems to me that the the starting point, the the fundamental insight of, of this volume that Jim helped put together, is that terrorism succeeds on a strategic level based in large part not on what the terrorists themselves do, but what what the terrorists' victims choose to do. Uh, What I mean by on the strategic level is, of course, terrorists can control whether a given bomb goes off and they can take lives and cause destruction. But in terms of really throwing a nation off kilter and changing policies and politics, That relies on terrorist victims every bit as much as on terrorists themselves, which is empowering in a sense. It means that we can, in fact, figure out ways not to let terrorists be strategically successful. What this also means is that when terrorists fail or seem to fail, we, as their victims or intended victims, can help them succeed. And we obviously want to avoid doing that. Uh, Hopefully, we're going to see more and more terrorist failures to the extent that we see terrorist attacks at all. Uh, It seems that we have, over the past decade or so, degraded what people call al-Qaeda central, the the core group that seems to be on the Afghan-Pakistan border. They're still a threat, but they don't seem themselves capable of launching particularly well-coordinated or particularly well-planned attacks. 
Instead, what we see are less well-executed attacks. So we see on Christmas Day, Abdul Muttalib's attempt to bring down the airliner bound for Detroit. We saw the bomb that uh, was placed in Times Square. And these are failures. The, that plane landed safely. The bomb didn't go off. And that's a good thing. It's a good starting point to be able to degrade terrorist capacity to the point where they are launching failed rather than successful attacks. But what we need to avoid doing is making them strategic successes anyway. What do I mean by strategic success? Well, for a terrorist or for a terrorist group, our doing the following things or some combination, combination of them is a strategic success. We can, as Jim said, provide a lot of attention to al-Qaeda and other groups. To the extent that people aren't talking about these groups, they're not players on, on the international scene. They're not the political actors they want to become. They're not luring recruits in the way they need to if they're going to stay uh, at least relevant as they very much want to. We can also divide ourselves politically and clash over how we should respond. We can redirect our funds from the ways in which we might ideally want to spend them into ways that are, by definition, less productive if they're not the ways we otherwise would have spent them. We can invite our involvement, either militarily or politically or in all sorts of ways, in countries where the more involved we get, the more we actually can destabilize those countries, at least if we don't do it perfectly well. And it's very hard to engage in other countries perfectly. And we can also fray our relationships with our allies, which is particularly important in the counterterrorism context because counterterrorism relies on intelligence and intelligence sharing. And you need allies if you're going to have someone sharing intelligence with you. We can do all these things ourselves. And while they're all problems in the wake of a successful attack, as they were problems in the wake of 9-11, they actually can be problems in the wake of a failed attack, too. And we see, as we see more and more failed attacks, we need to find a way to avoid doing these things anyway, to avoid turning tactical failures, bombs that don't explode, and air airplanes that land safely, into strategic successes by doing these things as the victims, or intended victims, of terrorism. So that raises the question, how? How do we get to a point where we respond to even failed attacks in ways that keep them as the failures that they are and should remain? The, that leads me to my second point, which is that strategic communication, in a very important sense, begins here at home. Uh, since 9-11, we've heard a lot of talk about this idea of strategic communication, and it's unclear a lot of times what people mean by that. Part of it is about public diplomacy and what our political leadership says, either directed to foreign publics or actually when our political leadership is abroad and clearly speaking uh, to those publics, that can be very important. It can change perceptions of the U.S. Uh, those messages matter. Uh, but there's also more that, that I think should count and should be uh, focused on as an important part of strategic communication. So in my book, I wrote the following. Perhaps the strongest conceivable antidote to al-Qaeda's strategy would be for an American president to educate the American public regarding the nature of al-Qaeda's strategy, such as its reliance on provocation, publicity, and panic. I still think that's true, and I think it's true for other political leaders here in America every bit as much as it's true for the president. Our government in the wake of 9-11 made many attempts to say something about ourselves as a nation um, to, to what I call signal um, by taking certain actions, mainly actions abroad and to a great extent uh, military actions. 
But at times, what seemed to be speaking loudest was our populace. It was our public and what our public called for, what our public tolerated, what our public seemed to demand from its political leadership that others were picking up on. And we know what people drawn to al-Qaeda pick up on. They have discussions in in chat rooms, on websites, they, their documents don't always stay secret. Sometimes their documents aren't even intended to be secret because it, it doesn't matter if we see what their discussions are. And so this isn't pure speculation. We know that the American public's uh, susceptibility in, a, in an emotional sense, in a psychological sense, got mentioned by people like bin Laden, by Zawahiri, but also people lower down, strategists like al-Suri, other people who are important in in the community that surrounds al-Qaeda and like-minded groups. Homeland security experts talk a lot about the idea of hardening targets. Um, Hardening buildings usually is what they mean, and we've made some progress in hardening targets. But what I want to emphasize here is that we need to harden the American public. That's That's the entity that needs hardening in a sense. So when the American public demands military overreactions or leads to political clashes here at home, that sends uh, a signal detrimental to our counter-terrorist interests. It sends a signal that our population is still the type of public that responds to terrorism in a way conducive to terrorist objectives of doing all the things I mentioned before or really leading us to do all those things. So how do we change that? Well, not, not surprisingly... American leaders, political and otherwise, tend to talk about terrorism and counterterrorism at what is probably the worst possible time for doing so, in the immediate wake of an attack or a failed attack. makes complete sense. That's when the media is covering it. That's when it's on everyone's minds. But it's also probably the worst time to talk about terrorism because it's when everyone's panicked. And when people are panicked, they're not as able to process either the cold, hard facts of what just happened or, thankfully, in recent incidents, what just didn't happen but could have happened. Um, It's also a time when people do need reassurance. They want to know that their political leaders are paying attention to what can be, at times, a a, a scary threat. We saw that need for, for attention, for reassurance, come out after the failed attack on Christmas Day. But it seems to me that if we want to move forward, if we want to harden the American public, it makes a lot more sense to talk about terrorism when there has been no attack. It's then that our leadership can lay the groundwork for an American public that says, I get it, they're trying to provoke overreaction, or I get it, that was a failed attack. Our systems may not have been perfect, but in the end it didn't work. And what we need to do is avoid playing into the hands of those who've just attempted to harm us. I think it's in those calm periods, those spaces between terrorist attacks, that the real communicative work can get done if we're willing to invest effort in doing so. So I guess, in a sense, the route for strategic communication that I'm advocating here is not the one that we saw of the American political leadership to some entity or entities located abroad. It's instead the American political leadership to the American public and then abroad to terrorists and to would-be terrorists who are watching that public, engaging that public for its reaction to failed attacks and successful attacks. It seems to me we've, we've moved a little bit in a useful direction. I think after the, the bomb that didn't go off in Times Square, well, we didn't see as panicked a response as we'd seen uh, after some earlier attacks. We saw a, a public that in New York City really seemed to take pride in saying, I'm going to go to work the next morning, and I'm going to go to work the same way I go to work every other day. I'm going to drive through Times Square. 
I'm going to make use of this city as I need to and not be affected by a bomb that didn't go off yesterday. It's, it's a reaction that sometimes we praise the British for uh, in the wake of, of the July 2005 attacks in London. And it's in some ways easier for them because, unfortunately, they've suffered more, quantitatively, more attacks over the years. But it's getting to a point like that where the, the, the public's reaction is to take pride in going about their daily activities. It seems to be the hardening of the American public that we could use. It seems to me that our political leadership has two roles. One is to help us get there as a nation, and two is to recognize that we're already getting there and to recognize that the public may not be calling for the same types of dramatic statements or spending or overreactions in general that, in fact, the public did seem to demand after 9-11 itself. So the bottom line, I guess, is that strategic, strategic communication begins here at home. If our political leadership can increase the resilience of the American people by increasing its understanding of what terrorists want, overreaction, it would go a long way toward improving the signal that we send, the perception of America that we project to various crucial audiences abroad, including the terrorists and the would-be terrorists who are assessing us. So I guess I'd like to end on a quotation from Chris and, and Paul Pillar's chapter in the book, uh, where they write, a sound and comprehensive counterterrorism strategy aims to calm public fears of terrorism by informing the intended targets of terrorism, the public at large, about the terrorists' actual capabilities to do harm. What I want to emphasize is that those capabilities are, in a sense, our capability to harm our, ourselves in reaction to what terrorists do, and that the public really needs to understand that in order for us collectively to respond more effectively to terrorism. And I think our leadership can play an important role in hardening our public and helping us get there. Thank you. Great stuff. Um, we do have some time for questions. If you have a question, uh, please wait till I call on you. Keep it relatively short so we can get to as many folks as possible. And uh, feel free to identify yourself or not identify yourself. Questions? Brandon, I, I'll say one thing as people please. consider their questions. We, we're, we've talked a lot about strategy today, talked a lot about how we're, we're, we're trying to, as a nation, trying to counter terrorism. Um, I'll be frank with, with you. I'm trying to change your behavior uh, with this event today, and I, sort, and I see it as having sort of two parallel strategies. There's a positive strategy. That's the strategy of educating you so you can educate your colleagues and your bosses about these problems and how to approach them better, encouraging you to do that. The negative strategy is something that I like to do on the Cato blog quite a bit, and that's to call out members of Congress who hype threats or hype overreaction, promote overreaction. And so I'll just tell you straight up that, uh, that if, I, if I note that a boss of yours has gotten it wrong, in my opinion, I'm going to call it out on the Cato blog and try as hard as I can to give him or her a bad day and maybe give you a bad day. If I, if I ever do that to you, your boss, um, let me know and I'll buy you a beer. It's nothing personal. <laughs> But I really want you to have a bad day if your boss gets this wrong. <laughs> anyway. So I guess you may not want to identify which office you work for when you ask your question. 